Good to see you all. And Pastor Sam and our crosswalk team uh, cornered me this morning and said, we need more cars, so make sure it happens today. Um, so we need you to sign up. And let's say you already have some ideas, you're already set, but you don't sign up, then you're putting stress on Pastor Sam, and then he's going to be um, hounding me after. So QR code, sign up. I'm going to bring this and do that. And uh, um, as Pastor Jen mentioned, we're going to have... Um, big barbecue going the whole evening. It'll just be fun. Uh, you could come and hang out whether you have kids of that age or not. Uh, so please keep that in mind. Um, today we talk about the concept of knowledge. And there is a, a funny quote I came across. It says, knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad, right? It's a, there's some truth to that for sure. Uh, knowledge, as it's talked about here, makes us think that, boy, if I'm right, I'm right, and that's all that matters. And that's what many of the people in the church in Corinth were thinking, and when 1 Corinthians was written, that people say, well, I know that I know what I know, and I don't care what you think. And he addresses this very specifically, and he talks about this, you know, it is the famed uh, physicist Stephen Hawking who said that the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. That we think we know something. And there were people who had the illusion of knowledge in the church back then. They thought they knew what was right. And they did not care about anyone else. We see in the Bible um, that wisdom in itself is always practical. Wisdom is not so much about how many degrees a person has. Wisdom is not about how many books a person might have read. Or how many concepts that they could understand or teach. It was very practical. It's how you now responded to God and how you cared for others. There's many Bible verses that talk about that. Proverbs 9, 10, the beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, right? It begins with God and fearing God. It also uh, talks about in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable, uh, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So, it's very practical. It's how you behave, what you do, how you treat others. This is the knowledge that is true wisdom. And this is what is mentioned here. You know, um, today we're going to look at this passage. We're going to go through it and talk about this main topic of knowledge. And it's centered around one specific thing, around the eating of certain foods, certain meats that were now sacrificed to idols. And many thought that you shouldn't eat those meats because they were sacrificed in the temple, offered to idols, and they would be now sold at the market. And so some people thought you shouldn't eat that. There were others in the church that who cares? It's just meat, right? I want to have, have meat and who cares? And so us today, when we look at this, we might say, this isn't that exciting or this passage isn't that exciting. I doubt there's anyone that had this tattooed on their arm as their life verse or passage, you know, this is um, kind of interesting, but there is an underlying truth to this uh, that we could learn so much from, and I want to share some of those with us today. Um, you know, it was what people ate all throughout history and even today that defined who they were. Uh, back in biblical days, you see when Peter is called by God to go make sure the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles and the Jews were differentiated by their dietary restrictions, what they ate. What they ate made them, quote-unquote, clean or unclean. 
And God visits Peter in a vision and shows him all these animals in Acts chapter 10. And he reminds them and he tells them that you can eat all of these things. Now look here in Acts 10, 10, it says, And he became hungry, wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Verse 11, And saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by in four corners upon the earth. Verse 12, In it were all kinds of birds and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is his response. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. So, it was a big deal. What you eat, what you abstain from, it was a big deal. And many said, this now identifies me with God, or this now makes me a pagan or an outsider. And so this was a a very important issue of the day. Um, I remember growing up, um, and when I, when I was little, before I moved to the States at age six, and I remember my grandmother occasionally, a nominal Buddhist at that time, would take us to the Buddhist temple and we would have a meal there. There'd be some uh, ceremony or whatnot, and we'd go. And I still remember distinctly going there. I was afraid of the monks because their heads were shaved and they were pretty serious looking. They were dressed funny, and I was afraid of them. But grandma said, we got to go eat. And I remember going there, and it was all vegetables. And the question I had, the complaint I had as a four-year-old, five-year-old to grandma, where's the beef, right? Where's the beef, right? Um, Food is important. You think about today. All the religions of the day, there's a chart that I wanted to shoot up here. It has all the religions and the food that they're allowed to eat. The check mark means yes. The X means you cannot eat. And you look at this list. The Buddhist... uh, were supposed to be vegetarians. You look at the Hindus, they cannot eat anything that's alive with the belief of reincarnation that this great-grandma could be now in the form of a cow or uh, whatever it is. And uh, so they avoided that. Uh, In Islam, everything has to be quote-unquote halal. It has to be now proper or fitting, that's what they say, in the way that the blood was now drained from the animal by a devout uh, Muslim, and then it was considered now fitted to eat. And in the same way that Jews do the same with food that's kosher, that it is now prepared by a Jew, that is now prepared, and it is now called clean, and so on. And you see this list. The Mormons, they could eat everything, but they can't drink anything. Um, you see that list, right? It's You got all sorts of stuff. Um, you got the... Uh, the Buddhists, they could drink anything, but they sure can't eat anything. And then you look right there, Protestant Christians, check marks all the way down the line. Praise the Lord. Amen. Right? Amen. Right? I mean, this is it. If I, if I were to judge and pick a religion just from this list, I'm going with the Christians. Because I could eat, I could drink, and it's all permissible by God. And uh, it is all in this way. And then you look at this list. And you look at now the culture of certain people where they believe in these things. I had two friends in high school who were, uh, family was Hindu. uh, And uh, it's interesting because these two brothers were both over six feet and both about 250 pounds. And I'd say, hey, what does your mom feed you? Strictly vegetables. 
vegetable curry most of the time. They confessed to me how they did not like it. And I said, well, how did you get to 250 pounds eating carrots and stuff? How did you do that? They said, you know, Steve, don't tell anyone, but now I'm, it's going to be on YouTube forever. Uh, it's a long time. But they, they said, after dinner, they would pack their bags to go to the library, and on the library, every night, they went to In-N-Out and got two double-doubles each, right? And they would enjoy that. And I said, your parents, I said, your parents must know. That veg, eating just vegetables is not going to make 250 pounds. I said, I don't know, but that's what we eat, right? Uh, and I remember them doing that in this way. Now, going back to the occasion here in Corinth. Corinth, remember we talked about sexual immorality and the prostitution that was happening at the temple. The temple was the center of the city. The temple dictated the culture of the city. And in the temple, uh, they would have all now the different gods and goddesses there. And at different occasions, they would offer meat to the gods or goddesses, the statues that were there to designate them. And so they would offer these meats and people would buy the meat. They would have it offered on their behalf for some good luck or good fortune. And then obviously after they offer it, the people who worked at the temple would consume it. And then there was so much that they would sell it. And uh, some people, some commentators talk about how most of the meat that the butchers sold were offered to the idols before. And in the temple, they would have now uh, little uh, dining, feasting rooms, and you could rent it in a way. And so people would often have parties there or a special occasion. It's grandma's 80th birthday or certain things, and they would come to the temple. And they would meet there, and almost out of ceremony, they would get the, quote-unquote, the blessing from one of the people who worked there on behalf of now the idol of prosperity, an idol of this. And then they would give a little meat, and they would now go through the ceremony, and they would eat. And it was almost cultural. It was like people would do it, as I did when I was little, going to the Buddhist temple. But for some people, this was very serious. For some people, they put their hope in these false gods. They put their life dependence on this. Their faith and hope was on these gods. And then they turn their life to Christ. They become a Christian. They come into the church. And so when they think about the temple, they think about the idols. Everything is so real for them. Uh, There are things that they had to shun away from, run away from. And so now they come into the church and there are those in the church are eating the meat. They're going to the temple to eat the meat. And so these Christians, or these new Christians, who have turned away from that, are in shock. They're appalled. How can you eat the meat that's offered to these false idols? How can you do that? How can you participate in what they are doing? You are a Christian. But those who have been Christians a long time, those, quote-unquote, who had knowledge, said, what are you talking about? This is nothing. Don't worry about this. This is nothing. It's meaningless. And it is at that particular situation, Paul writes this very specifically. And he talks about knowledge. And he says, first of all, knowledge, he talks about the knowledge that puffs up. There's knowledge that puffs up. A knowledge that makes someone feel self-important. The knowledge that says, it's about me. And he addresses that issue first. 
And so in this passage, you see the word knowledge or know over and over and over because that's the main kind of topic of it. What you think you know and what you do with what you know. And he addresses this topic of knowledge and it says here in verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Right? You see, there he's going through the list, the checklist of the issues he has to address. And he says, now, okay, next one on the list I have to reply to, uh, concerning food offered to idols. We know... And there's quotes. This is what the, quote-unquote, the people who were consuming the meat were saying. All of us possess knowledge. This, quote-unquote, knowledge puffs up, he says. So those of you who are saying, all of us have this knowledge, we know better. And so whether it bothers you or not, we know better. And he says, this kind of knowledge puffs up. If anyone imagines, verse 2, that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's saying, you don't really know. You think you understand, but the way that you are behaving, you do not really know. C.S. Lewis talks often about pride, and I just took a few of his just well-said quotes about pride. He says, pride leads to every other vice. Secondly, he says, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Thirdly, it is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, every family since the world began. And this is the type of quote-unquote knowledge that they had. It says, what I know, what benefits me, and I don't care about anyone else. Knowledge puffs up. Oh, we have to be so very careful of our quote-unquote knowledge, of our pride. And sometimes it is the person who learns just a little bit that often now lives out in this type of quote, knowledge, quote-unquote knowledge. The second thing about knowledge is they, some of these people assume that knowledge was a source of good works. The more I, quote-unquote, know about God, know things about God, the more I am acceptable to God. It was their good works. And it says here in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Uh, you see it kind of a reversal here, just verse 3. All the way up till then, it's about what I know. I have this knowledge. I have this knowledge. And he now rebukes them by saying, it's not about what you know, but that you are, quote unquote, known by God. And it's flipped. The subject is flipped. It is more important that God knows you than that you know God. This is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's not what can I bring to God, what can I prove to God, how smart I am and how much knowledge I have before God, that I am more acceptable to God than someone else. No, it's that God knows you. He says in verse 8, again, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do eat. And he's explaining, as you are going through, and you guys are bickering about this, and you think what you do about food or what you say you know makes you better or more acceptable before God, he says that is not what the gospel is. And we know the story that uh, Jesus tells in Luke 18. Two men in the temple, they go up to pray. We know that story. Uh, One who goes up to pray is a Pharisee, a religious leader, a self-righteous person with knowledge, and the second person who prays, is the tax collector, the one that is shunned by society as the sinful one, the one who would steal from his own people and pocket the money, the tax collector. And it says this, uh, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this. God, I thank you I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like that, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, yet beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We often think that what I know, what I accomplished, that I've read a book, I've gone through this, and somehow this makes me more acceptable to God. And how untrue that is. And it's in the middle of this passage that now Paul clarifies on the knowledge of who God is. Number three, the knowledge of God. He says, okay, let me just make sure, in the midst of this conversation, let me clarify who God is amongst the idols and the other false gods. And he gives us the knowledge about God. In verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, again, there's the idea, the thought of knowing, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there, are, uh, there may be so many gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. He is arguing here. Yes, there is one God, one Lord Jesus Christ. We are what we would uh, consider a, a monotheistic religion. We believe there is one God. There are many that dilute this and they believe there are many gods, many deities. Um, He says, no, the Christian believes there's only one real God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah uh, records this and is an argument against the powerless God, the impotent idol that people bow to. And the argument that God makes is how foolish it is that it is a carpenter who now makes this statue and you bow to it. Who's the creator? It is man, basically, is his argument. Isaiah 44, 13, you should have this highlighted or in your thoughts um, as we go through this. Such an important passage. And he keeps pointing to now the creator of the idol, which is man. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, he lets it grow strong among the trees, he plants a cedar. I mean, this is all what he's doing. And then what does he do? He takes part of it, verse 15, warms himself, he kindles a fire, bakes bread. He makes a god, worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. The other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. All right, and then verse 17, And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Speaking of the gods or the idols, he says, They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has eyes, he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. 
stand. Saying they are powerless. All of these gods or idols that are built. And I don't know if you've ever been to one. I mean, even on a, on a trivial level. Uh, after church, say, you might go to some kind of a, a Chinese restaurant or a Thai restaurant. And in the corner somewhere, or even in the front, they might have a little statue of a Buddha or something like that. Might have some incense, might have a little bit of money or a little even food laid out before. Kind of a good luck charm. Something for prosperity. I can go in, and that bothers me not one bit. I'm just concerned about how good the noodles are, right? I don't, I don't care about this. It is powerless to me. It's, it's got no power for me. Uh, you think about this. Um, growing up, I, I, I had no problem going to eat at the Buddhist temple, right? But you think about somebody else. You think about those in the church that might stumble over this. Um, imagine if I invited you, you get an invitation from me. Like, oh, wow, Pastor Steve's having a birthday party. I'm invited, wow. Oh, what's at the Buddhist temple? Oh, man, why is he, why is he doing it at the Buddhist temple? And you say, why are you doing it at the Buddhist temple? I, you know, vegetarian, it's kind of good. Um, you know, my grandmother's uh, old neighbor, I have a contact, I get 20% off. What, I mean, whatever it is. But you would say, what kind of, well, why would the pastor have a party at the Buddhist temple? On one sense, it has no power over me. I don't care. It does not bother me one bit, but at the same time, we want to be sensitive to those around us. This would be knowledge that puffs up. And me arguing to you, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Imagine when we have trink or treat. And if uh, Pastor Sam and myself and Pastor John and we dress up like Satan and demons and we think it's funny, and you're going, what in the world are they doing? I say, hey, this is all, that has no power over me, right? This is all about knowledge. And the kids are crying, hey, stop crying. That has no power, right? Boo. And you say, oh my gosh, what is? And that's what they were doing. And this is the argument here, that God is one, yeah, these idols and gods have no power. Our God is one. The Shema, as it's known amongst the Jews, the prayer that all devout Jews would know, coming from Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema meaning hear, or listen. 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was now the prayer, the Shema, that most followers of God would say, and we say today. So what does this knowledge have to do? The knowledge that the gospel gives us, fourthly, is a knowledge that builds others up. He argues against the knowledge that puffs up, the knowledge that is filled with pride, that hurts others. He says, have a knowledge that is wise, that builds others up. Yes, it is still true. You're not compromising, but you're building others up. Verse 9, he says this, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have, quote-unquote, knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be, not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now, don't be a stumbling block to them. He says to take care. That command to take care is in the imperative. It's, it's, a, it's a serious command. It's a strong command. It's in the present tense. It means continually, 
without stopping, take care that your right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block. Proscoma. A stone or an obstacle that hinders a person from progressing. And he says, don't let your quote-unquote knowledge be this stumbling block. Verse 11, he says, and so by your knowledge, this weak, he calls it weak, the person who has a soft conscience, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Before you say, I don't care about them, Paul is saying here, this is the brother for whom Christ died. Before you say, well, that's his problem, this is the brother for whom Christ died. This makes that person that much more valuable and important. So in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We as a church, as we gather together, and some of you, there are some in our church who have been in church since the womb. You were in the church, and you know the Bible, and you know, and you have knowledge. There are some that are new, This year might be the first time coming to church and this whole faith. It is so important that we in the church have to get away from the me mindset. The individualistic mindset about just me and God, that's all that matters. And sometimes in our our Western thinking, it's just individualistic. It's me and God, my devotional, my walk with God, my quiet time, that's all that matters. But the church is us how important it is that we have a a we mindset. The people of God, not individual persons of God. We are called the people of God. And so we have to consider all those, the mature, the immature, the strong and the weak, and we have to change our mindset to a we mindset. There was a study done in Australia that examined the campaign speeches of all the prime ministerial candidates. And they found out that the person who won more than 80% of the time, when they examined their speeches, the person who used the word we or us more won 80% of the time. Obviously, there's a sense for the listener of it's we are one person, we are together, we're going and going to do this together versus the, the smart person that has all the solutions. It's I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But also, I think maybe it touches upon that candidate himself or herself. That that person did view themselves as a part of something bigger, a part of the community in this way. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, and I close with this two verses, that this would be our thought. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Also, to the interest of others. So in all of the things that we do, the way that we speak, the things that we consume, let us consider others. 
And all the things that we think I am so right and who cares, let us think about the one for whom Christ has died. And let us now live on their behalf to benefit them. Could we make a prayer and could we confess to God, God, would you, if I've ever been a stumbling block, Lord, would you forgive me? And Lord, if I've been this block in the middle of the road that have kept someone from growing or stumbled them in their faith, God, would you forgive me? And could we say, God, could you make me into a stepping stone? That people would not be able to step onto us and we would lift them up closer to Jesus in our speech, in our lives, in our actions, that we could now say, it's about you, Jesus Christ, them coming to you. That is a life that is worth living in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and uh, we come before you, many of us, Lord God, often guilty of thinking about just ourselves. So we confess that sin. And at the same time, Lord God, would you help us to be a, a stepping stone for others to draw closer. Lord, that we would consider others more important than ourselves because you have died for them. So Lord, when our flesh wants to stand up and fight for our own rights and my own beliefs and not care about those around me. Lord, would you help us to live out your truth and grace? And it is not what we know about you that matters so much as that it is you who know us. You who called us first. And Lord, so that beautiful message of the gospel rings true here again and brings us to you. So we thank you, God. We lift up this song, we lift up these prayers, God, to you. In Jesus' name, amen.